Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 163 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, you ever sit down and just have a conversation with someone and feel like you've been friends for about 100 years? Now, I've been following Erwin McManus probably literally since the 90s. He's been a thought leader, author, church leader, the whole deal. Um, But when I sat down with him to have a conversation, I thought about his book, but really it just ranged all about his life, about his recent cancer diagnosis. Man, it was just one of those connections that was so rich. And um, if you're like me, you're probably going to listen back to this conversation more than once because it is just loaded with insight. And he says some things about the culture, about a prophetic voice, about fear, about life. Um, about leadership and and just a perspective on life that's so refreshing. I think you're going to love this episode. So my conversation is with Erwin McManus, and uh, man, I'm I'm just really excited about bringing this one to you. Hey, I got a couple of things I want to share with you. First of all, thank you for all the feedback and questions on the new course I released a little while ago called Breaking 200 Without Breaking You. Um, I had a lot of you, like hundreds of you ask, so like we're not at 200, is this course for me? So I just thought, well, let's talk about that for a second. And this principle applies whether you, you take the course, buy the course or not. But you know, it's really interesting, and this is just a leadership principle on scale. So quick little teaching moment. The real problems with breaking the 200 growth barrier and the 100 barrier and frankly the 500 barrier are whether or not you try to do everything yourself. And you know this, I knew this even long before we got past, you know, two 500 in attendance. But um, the best leaders don't do everything themselves. And yet there's a part of me that was really control freak, a part of me that felt guilty if I didn't do everything myself. And so really the 200 barrier, I picked that as a course name, number one, because that's a barrier that 85% of all churches never get through. But what the course really unpacks is this whole idea of how do you stop leading everything? And then how does your board stop controlling everything or your congregation stop controlling everything? So that essentially you get to a point where um, you've got great aligned leadership running the church in the day-to-day ministry. You're the vision caster, you're the leader, you can lead your church through various phases. So the principles in the course really, now that we have hundreds of users in it, I think we're beginning to learn something that I suspected but wasn't 100% sure until people started taking it, which is, yeah, it works to like 400, even 500. Sometimes you'll make all the changes you need to make by the time you hit 500. Frankly, sometimes people will go to almost 1,000 before they really release leadership beyond themselves. Now, by that point, a lot of people are burnt out or, you know, dead trying or whatever. Um, But that's how that course works. And I just wanted to let you know that if you haven't checked it out yet, Number one, you can go check it out at breaking200withoutbreakingyou.com. But if you struggle with being the leader who does everything himself, empowering a team of volunteers, or even matters like pastoral care or how much your board wants to know, hey, that's what that is all about. And I've released a lot of free information around it too on my blog. So you can check that out at leadlikeneverbefore.com on my blog or then breaking 200 without breaking you. So I hope that helps answer that question. Also, hey, what are you doing in February? Because I would love to hang out in sunny California. Does that sound good? That's actually where Erwin McManus is, just down the road from Hollywood. I am actually going to be 
at uh, the Pipeline event. And I'm very, very excited about that. It is Pipeline West. It's a conference that's being put on to develop this whole thing that we've already been talking about, a leadership pipeline, happening February 22nd. And um, I'd love for you to be part of it. You can visit myleadershippipeline.com and... Just a week left on this, but if you act now and you register now, you can get 10% off a ticket by using the promo code LEAD LIKE NEVER BEFORE. So go to myleadershippipeline.com, enter the promo code LEAD LIKE NEVER BEFORE, and before October 31st, you'll get 10% off your ticket, and then we can hang out in February. How does that sound? So listen, really excited to bring you this conversation today with Erwin McManus. It's rich, all the info you could want, including all the links to the books he talks about and um, his website and anything else we discuss are in the show notes, which you can find at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 163. So here we go with today's conversation. Well, Erwin, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Oh, it's so good to be here with you, Kerry. Thanks. So you talk about in your new book, you got a, a, a diagnosis I don't think any of us anticipates uh, within the last year. Um, what's it like, like for you to find out that, you know, when you walk in, the doctor tells you, wow, you've got cancer. I mean, I just can't imagine what that news would feel like. And how was that? How was that for you? Um, and uh, what's the journey been like over the last year or so? Yeah, it's funny how we begin our interview right here talking about cancer. Uh, whenever you have like a negative diagnosis in your life or something traumatic happen, our natural inclination is to put that right at the center of the story. Uh-huh. And so, so I'm going to pull back and go, um, I did have cancer and I was diagnosed with cancer and I had surgery, but it was never in the center of my story, even when I had cancer. Hmm. And, and I think to me, that's the more important thing. Uh, there's, there's no way around it. When you hear a doctor tell you you have cancer, uh, it translates in your brain as, oh, you're dying, you know, yeah. and, and now they're letting you know how you're going to die. And, and what was really challenging was, you know, I probably had it for like eight, 10 years. And because of that, it was more advanced than it needed to be and uh, made it more, um, you know, made it more uh, life threatening. And, um, and it was right before Christmas, about 10 days yeah. on December 15th, we found out. Uh, so it, it was really sobering. And, and what was uh, amazing to me is I, I just finished the manuscript for um, my next book called The Last Arrow. And it was really uh, just, uh, to me, almost like uh, poetic that uh, I would write a book called The Last Arrow, and it might literally be my last arrow, my last book. It could be my last Christmas, my last of everything. And, um, and that, it was really hard on my family. I, it was um, a heavy Christmas. There's no way around it. You know, my, my daughter was just, I think really traumatized. My son was brokenhearted and, and, uh, my wife, Kim, you know, it was just really difficult for her and her birthday was two days before Christmas. So we went right into her birthday with uh, this diagnosis. And, and, um, what was amazing to me though, was it didn't, um, it, it didn't change me. It's not like I wrote the book now that I had a new perspective on life because I had cancer. What really kind of, um, for me was most astonishing was it just reinforced to me that the way I saw the world was the way I wanted to see the world. The way I was living my life was the way I wanted to live my life. And, and I thought it's kind of tragic that a lot of us have to have almost like a, a game ending kind of crisis to finally like get in the game and treat life like it matters. Hmm. 
I remember in the introduction to your book, The Last Arrow, um, it sounds like the manuscript was done. Um, but in that those first opening words of the book, you go in and say, wow, I finished this, but I just got this diagnosis. Um, I think a lot of us play through that scenario in our head, and I haven't had a diagnosis like you have, and some of our leaders listening have, and, and many haven't. Um, and you always think, okay, I think I'm ready for this. I think I've done what I need to do. I think my accounts are short, or at least that's what I think. But was that like, how, how did you process that when you were, when you looked at a, you know, and, and obviously the story has turned out differently than it could have, but like, did you have a major recalibration? Did you have a, oh my goodness, or a whole series of regrets? Or it was pretty much like, I think, I think I'm there. I think, I think I've done what God called me to do and live the way I want to live. What was that processing like for you? Uh, yeah, I didn't have regrets. In fact, that's what the whole book is about. It's how to live your life without regret. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, but you and, wrote it before you knew. Yeah, and, yeah. But I, because I've been living my life that way. Right. And, and I think that was the, the, really the powerful theme uh, that just was solidified in my own life. I mean, I, um, you know, I mean, since I was in my 20s, since I gave my life to Jesus, since I became a follower of Christ, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I walked in the middle of uh, drug cartels and into, you know, projects where um, cocaine was stacked to the ceilings, there's machine guns everywhere, where, um, you know, FBI and, and uh, drug agencies don't go and don't come out of. And, you know, I, I live my life in that world. And you know, I walked the streets of Damascus, Syria and Istanbul, Turkey and, and uh, you know, Islamabad, Pakistan and uh, Penh Pen, Cambodia. And a lot of times, like, you know, people have when I've lived those sections of my life, you're like, well, how did you do that? And I go, same way I face cancer. I put death behind me and all I had in front of me was life. And I think a lot of times um, we're, um, we're afraid to die because we've actually been afraid to live. Hmm. And so I didn't recalibrate my life. It actually just calibrated it. It reinforced to me that I've gotten to live the life I've lived because I have faced it this way. And, um, and so I wasn't running around going, oh, no, I'm not ready to die. I need to make sure I get these things in place. I need to make sure that th- th- my life is in order. I don't want to be ready to die. I want to be ready to live. I think there's a difference. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think so many people struggle with that issue? You know, with the, with the issue. Like the fear of death. Yeah. Fear, let, let's start there. Let's start with fear of death. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the unique things about being in Los Angeles, being right in the middle of Hollywood is that most of the people that we engage do not have, um, a faith, a narrative in their life. You know, they're not followers of Christ. They're not, you know, Christians in any way. They may hate God and Jesus and Christianity. And, and, uh, and so, you know, there's, they're not people inclined to believe in heaven or the afterlife, or they think that you're sort of primitive and, and out of touch with reality. If you're talking like that and, and I always tell them, I said, look, uh, the only proof of life after death is life before death. Hmm. And the reason we're so afraid to die is because we actually know we've never lived. But if you've actually lived, you're not afraid of death because you know that life is more powerful than death. You've already experienced the, uh, the overwhelming power of being alive over existing. Hmm. When you walked into those situations, you know, where the FBI and the police don't even want to go, 
Walk us through that because I think fear is a very real thing that holds people back on a regular basis. And I know you write about it, not only in this book you address it, but you address it in a lot of your other work as well. Mm -hmm. How do you walk into a situation like that? I mean, yeah, all the, oh yeah, we're trusting God, but yeah, a lot of us would say, okay, my trust goes this far, but not that far. What's, what's the deal? Yeah, well, I mean, there's extremes, right? You know, some people, I go, if, if you're not afraid, it's because you're stupid. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, is there some just, of that at play? <laughs> yeah, you're just, you're just unaware of the reality of what's going on around you. So if there's a, uh, an, you know, a hungry lion looking for dinner, um, you know, fear is a human and intelligent response. Yeah. And, and so I, I don't believe in this idea that you can not experience fear. I definitely believe that fear does not have to have mastery of your life. And, and there's a difference. And if you're not afraid, then you're not a, you're not a hero. If, if you're not afraid, it doesn't require courage. The only time courage is necessary is when you grip with fear. That's actually how you know it's a heroic moment. It's an opportunity to step up. And, uh, and so, you, you know, I, I see fear as the same as pain. You know, you, you have, if you break your leg and, you, and you're not capable of feeling pain, you won't know that something's broken and damaged. Right. And so I don't see fear as a problem. I, I, um, but whatever you fear establishes the boundaries of your freedom. And so if you're afraid of heights, you stay low. If you're afraid of people, you stay alone. If you're afraid of the outdoors, you stay indoors. If you're, uh, and so whatever you fear, that establishes the boundaries of your freedom. And so if you... That's why I think the, the scriptures talks about um, fearing the Lord. I mean, why would fearing God be such a positive thing? It's because God is the only one that if you fear him will not use that fear to limit you because perfect love casts out all fear. And so when God is your only fear, you in a sense then become free of the dominating power of fear and you're now finally free to live. And, you know, and so I, I've, I've grown up with a lot of fears, and I just made a concerted effort throughout my life to face those fears, to step into those fears. And in fact, I think sometimes that actually made me look incredibly courageous mm. <laughs> because I stepped into fears that other people had, and they thought I wasn't afraid. And it wasn't that I wasn't afraid. I refused to allow fear to establish the boundary of my freedom. That is, you know, I've never heard anyone quite say it as articulately as you say it, when you talk about that, let's break that down. So you're walking into a situation where, and I think that's very true, is we all feel fear. It's not, you know, if you don't feel fear, you're stupid, right? Like when you see a lion, you should be afraid. When you see a whole bunch of, you know, automatic weapons and cocaine packed to the ceiling, yeah, that's not a normal day. How do you talk yourself? Like what is your self-talk when you go into a situation like that or your prayer? Like, how do you get yourself into those rooms? <laughs> How do you get yourself through? Because I remember on social, I've followed you for a while, the day that you said to your church, hey, don't miss this. I have a big announcement. You know, you preached about right. your diagnosis, the whole deal. What is going on inside you as you talk yourself through that cliff? Yeah, first of all, if you're actually still in self-talk in the middle of the moment, you're probably dead in the water. <laughs> That's when the guns come after you. <laughs> well, you know, there's an instinct. Um, you can smell fear. And when a person is afraid, it, it's astonishing how it changes the environment. 
because your fear affects your surroundings. And, you know, I, I, all I can tell you is that usually I have had that conversation before I've entered the room. Right. You, you know, and so when I shared with uh, our community at Mosaic that I had cancer and I, I shared with them on Sunday and I think I was going to surgery that Tuesday. I, I, I waited um, to let them know just to right before I had the surgery. I, and I told my wife, I said, what I don't want is I don't want, I don't want pity. I don't want people focusing on my, um, my, my disease. I don't want people, fo- uh, I, don't, I, I don't, actually don't want people distracted from God's intention in their life. Um, the only reason I want to share this is to try to build faith in people's lives and to help them trust God when they're going through something like this. And, uh, and, and so I, I think for me, it, it, I just knew it, it couldn't be self-serving. And, uh, and, and that's a dangerous place to be sometimes, right? Because, you know, when we feel like we've been wronged or life has gone against us or God hasn't come through or, you know, it, it's so easy to feel bitter or, or to feel like a victim. And, and I just, I really felt that if God was going to um, allow me to step into this kind of journey in my life, that it couldn't simply be for me, that it had to be for other people who maybe needed to uh, absorb whatever courage I could bring into that moment uh, so they could have courage for their life. Do you mind walking us through the emotions you felt when you heard the news from the doctor to that day that you got up there? Because I think that's a good insight. You need to process your stuff before you share it or before you walk into the room, before you preach that message. Was it, was it a, like for a lot of people, a diagnosis like that is faith maker or faith breaker. And I've seen it break people. I've seen it make people. Um, how did that play out in, in your own life? How do you process that? Hey, see, I feel like moments like that just expose you. They just reveal you. They don't make or break you. They just strip you down and you get to see yourself. Wow. And, you know, I gave myself permission to feel whatever I needed to feel. I think sometimes, you know, our faith puts too much focus on the cosmetic external and rather than allowing a person to really process things from an honest human center. And, you know, so I didn't want to pretend I was happy or I didn't want to... Yeah act like something wasn't, you know, happening to me. So I told myself, I told my family, Hey, I'm going to give myself permission to feel bitter, anger, fear, whatever, whatever emotions come. I'm just going to give myself permission. And if I feel something today and tomorrow, the feeling changes, I'm going to give myself permission to feel whatever comes so that I can go through this in the most honest and authentic and human way. So I'm not alone because if you don't, if you don't allow yourself to feel what you must feel or what you do feel, and you don't share that with anyone, you're just going through it alone. And so I would never say to anyone, you need to feel what I felt. I, I think you need, I would, I would say to someone, you, you need to own what you feel and, and just realize, okay, this is where I'm at. And it may not be where you want to be, uh, but you just got to like own where you're at. And, um, and so when I share this, I, I don't want this to be like the standard for, um, you know, this is the way Jesus does things or something yeah, yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you know, because um, I cannot fully explain this. Um, when he told me I had cancer, 
one, it was, I, I'm an incredibly optimistic person. Right. So I really didn't like, I went in going, I'm going to get a perfect, you know, clean bill of health. It's all going to be good. We we're planning to have dinner with our kids. We we're going to celebrate that I got good news. I, um, I, I figure if you're going to get bad news, um, it's coming anyway. So you might as well go ahead and just assume it's going to be good. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I'm a very optimistic person, you know, why well, ruin the moment before that moment? just because that moment's coming. And so every moment up to that point was just purely optimistic. And then when he told me that, um, almost like right away, I looked at my wife and I could just see she was devastated. And that's what made me sad yeah. was, was the pain that she felt. And then when, I, uh, when we told our kids that night, um, what, the, the deep emotions I felt um, was the pain that the people I loved felt. And... But I can tell you, um, so far, I, you know, it could change tomorrow, but um, I, I didn't feel any fear. Hmm. None. I never felt afraid. I, um, I never felt bitter. Wow. I never felt anger. I, 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 I just, it just never came. I mean, I, I gave myself permission to feel it. And um, I just, I, I couldn't imagine being angry when um, God has been like so incredibly good to me and my life has been uh, such an extraordinary gift. I mean, and, uh, it's, it, it, it would, it just felt to me like it was, it was just, it would be such an inappropriate emotion for me. And, um, I, I, I didn't feel bitterness. I just, I just felt this overwhelming gratitude that, um, I've gotten to live the life I've had and, um, that there are things I love, people I love that I wouldn't want to leave behind. Uh, that didn't make me feel bitter. It just created for me an overwhelming sense of gratitude and an awareness of how beautiful life is. And, and I, I strangely didn't feel afraid. I, um, even when I didn't know, I, you know, yeah. they had to do MRIs to see how extensive it was. And, you know, the cancer got into my bladder and, and into my lymph nodes. And, and uh, right before the surgery, I was reading the documents and I said, Hey, uh, Dr. Khalili, this looks more extensive than what, you guys described it. And he said, yeah, we found more cancer this morning. And I mean, the surgery went from two hours to six hours. And, um, you know, right before you go under the knife to hear, oh, there's more than we thought, you know, I mean, I had the acute awareness that I might not wake up, you know, that this could be my last conscious memory. And, uh, um, and, you know, everything for me was just, man, I hope I've like prepared my kids to live well. Mm. You know, I hope that, uh, you know, my wife and kids will not be so wounded by my loss that they can't, you know, get up and live a really vibrant, beautiful life of faith. And, and I, I felt like how I responded would affect their faith journey. Mm. And this is the only way that people can actually know is if what you've said is real. And, um, you, you know, um, so, so far it's, uh, it's all true, you, you know? Mm. And, um, that was, that was, cause it wasn't like 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that was just 10 months ago. And yeah. I just had surgery this year, you know, seven months ago and, and been in the recovery process since. And, um, but, uh, you, you know what it did do is it, I have never, um, I've never been like comfortable with, um, 
you know, it's attention. Like you, you want to have positive influence in the world, but I'm not like a person who's driven towards celebrity or fame or anything like that. Sure. Um, I'm anyone who knows me knows that, um, that's not something I've ever pursued in my life. If anything, I've always, I set my life on fire to try to make sure that doesn't happen. And I disappear into obscurity. I stop writing books. I stop speaking. I, right. you know, if, and, um, and, and because at one time Bill Hybel said to me, Erwin, why do you even write books? You don't even want to sell them. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I realized it's, it's cause I, I have this like deep internal, um, sense of urgency to impact the world in a positive way and to change the way we think about faith, to change the way we think about God and ourselves and life. But at the same time, I have this overwhelming disdain for all the people I see who just constantly sell themselves and yeah. sell their stuff. And, and I just, you know, and, and what's happened, I think through this um, journey is it was kind of like, okay, you know, if I live, I'm supposed to push this. I'm supposed to be a part of this message. I did not want to talk about having cancer with this book. I did not want to write about it. It was my family who said, you have to put it in the book. Yeah. And cause you know, I, I'm a public person who's a private person, mm. you know? And, um, and so I, uh, and they were like, no, you have to do this. So I went back and rewrote the first and the last chapter battle, the battle and battle ready and, um, and put it in the context of this. And, it was so difficult when they first started asking me about marketing the book. They go, can we talk about you having cancer? And I kept writing, no, no, <laughs> no. And, uh, and my family's like, what are you talking about? This is what, you know, this is what your life is. This is what you've been through. And, and uh, so I've had to kind of get comfortable with it. But now that I'm on the other side of this, I'm like, I don't really care anymore what other people think about me or, you know, because you just get criticism so fast. And, and, um, I really think the message of this book is so important. And I, you know, I'm, I just turned 59. I'm almost mm. 60 years old. And I just seen so many people with so much talent, capacity, potential, never live up to all that. And, uh, and they have so much regret and they have, um, they've chosen a path that made them last, not more. And right now we, ha I think we have a cultural shift. America. I mean, I'm an immigrant, so I, I mean, I love this country. Uh, one of the things I always loved about America is that America always cheered the person pursuing a heroic life. Mm -hmm. America always cheered the dreamer. America cheered the Olympian. America cheered the person who aspired to greatness. And the rest of the world really didn't do that. That mm -hmm. was a very unique uh, part of American culture. And people would mock it across the world, oh, America and the American dream. And they would be flooding here because they wanted that dream too. Yeah. And we've become more like the rest of Europe and the Western world where uh, we no longer applaud the pursuit of greatness. Mm -hmm. um, we now um, have what other countries have taken on, like uh, cutting down the tall poppy and crab antics and, yeah, and this whole idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's Canadian. It's Aussie. It's Kiwi. It's European where you, you, you pull people down when you think they've, they've become too big for themselves. Yep. And in American culture, we've lost that, that uh, sense of, um, I can do something significant with my life, that there's something heroic that I can step into. And, um, and I think it's not just tragic for the U.S., I think it's tragic for the world because the world needs people to live heroic lives. 
the world is made better by people who dream big and have the courage to pursue those dreams to make the world a better place. And, and, uh, and, and so I, for me, like uh, The Last Arrow, it's not a self-help book. I've been saying it's, it's a self-sacrifice book. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not a book about how to get God to do more for you. It's, it's, in some sense, it's like how to get more in you so that you can uh, be a greater gift to the world. It's how to get, you know, how, how can God get you to give more of yourself to the world? And because every resource I'm convinced that God wants to give the world, he puts inside of a human being. And then that human being becomes the resource of God for the world. I got to ask you, because you mentioned it, you said as soon as, you know, you share any part of your story, and I understand being reluctant to talk about your health, I think a lot of us would have that, that same instinct. Did you get criticized? I mean, did, did people take shots at you or like, did that give an opportunity for your critics to, to have their moment? What did you experience any of that? Oh, you know, it's crazy. I, um, you know, Gary, in an interview, someone asked me, you know, what kind of, um, techniques or, or practices do you have to constantly see the world differently? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I said, oh, you, you, you don't really understand. Um, I have to work at seeing the world the same. Like I, I, hmm. um, I, I don't see the world differently because I wake up going, I want to see everything differently than everyone else in the world so that I can be hated. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wake up going, how, how close to the same can I look <laughs> so that I can feel like I belong. And, uh, so I live my life with critique and, you know, I stopped writing books for six years cause I just felt like. I didn't want to be in the middle of the vitriol, um, uh, acerbic conversations inside of the Christian world. It, yeah. it, and, um, and, you know, so I, I stepped out and went to anonymity for six years. And, and um, because I thought, I want to change the world. I don't want to fight with people of faith. Mm-hmm. I want to make a difference in the world. I want to see people come to know Jesus. I want to make the world more beautiful. And, um, and yeah, so you'll always find... I mean, there's a strange number of people out there. They're just weird, you know. They're, um, and uh, and when I when I wrote my book right before this, the artist and soul got so much critique. When I wrote this book, I really, I mean, right away. I mean, I, I look at other like Christian writers. They they only get five star reviews on on Amazon. I'm like, how are these guys so perfectly loved? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know? and uh, my my last book won a Buddhist Enlightenment Award. It won a uh, a secular like humanities award. It won a uh, a um, Latin American cultural award, and it, is, it was being like ripped to shreds by Christians. Oh and uh, and it finally did win a Christian award, which I thought, oh, thank God, maybe Christians will know that I actually am one, <laughs> that, that I'm a passionate follower of Jesus. And um, but you know, I, I just keep reminding myself, you know, they 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 wanted to kill Copernicus. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and that is like one of my internal themes. I, I just remind myself that that when you tell Christians that the Earth is not the center of the universe, that we revolve around the sun, that that generation of Christians are going to try to kill you because they're going to feel like you're a heretic and that you violated the truth of God. You know, if you tell them that the Earth is not flat and the Earth is round, there's a whole generation of people of faith who are absolutely certain that they're right that they can't distinguish between their beliefs and the truth. And, you know, I, I mean, I've prayed about this, like, you know, mm. and, and I, I was at this huge event and 
I felt like God was telling me to say something that I knew would not go well. And, and I, and I, I, I internally, I said to God, I said, God, I, I want to be like well-received, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I might've said something like, I want to be loved. And, mm. um, and I felt like God just so clearly said to me, I don't really care if people like you. Wow. And, uh, I care if you tell the truth. And, and Carrie, you've been with me on this journey for a long time. So, you know, there are things we were saying 20 years ago that, um, people considered heresy that now are just normal to the church. Yeah. Give us an example. Like what, what, what would be something that you were pilloried for in the nineties or the early two thousands that you would say, yeah, now most people go, sure. So I'll give you a concrete and a, and, uh, and, uh, and an abstract, sure. uh, Concrete, when we started meeting in a nightclub that Prince owned, you know, 25 years ago, whatever, I was a heretic because I was, you know, defacing the sacred by going into nightclubs and taking the gospel there. And Right, it, you're right, Erwin. <laughs> you know, now now even conservative co- Korean churches are in nightclubs. <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, another concrete, when we uh, took church off of our name, no, we didn't take church off of our name. I started the church without church on the name. I just called it Mosaic. And I was a heretic because I didn't love the church and I was ashamed of the church. And, and I go, no, you know, you, and I, I wrote this in Unstoppable Force, you know, over 20 years ago, that the problem is that we, we name our churches so that Christians know how to find us. <laughs> and uh, we don't name our churches so that unbelieving world will want to actually uh, join us. And, uh, we, you know, and so I just said, hey, look, I don't, I don't wear a T-shirt that says human. I don't need to put church on the church sign. Either we're, we are a church and the world will tell us we are or we don't deserve the name. You know, 25 years ago, it was heretical to not be called church. Yeah. And uh, now, you know, everyone's pared down to one name. In, in fact, it's so funny because, I mean, you look at the tw- 20 years. We were a mosaic. Right. That's all. And, you know, even then there was like Saddleback Valley Community Church. You know, mm-hmm. there's Willow Creek Community Church. There's, you know, North Point, you know, Community Church. Everything, and then little by little, Hillsong, right? Every, every, now it's just Hillsong. Now it's just North Point. Now it's just Willow. Like, yep. everyone has reduced down to the one word. That's true, but you went first, and, and you know, the pioneer is the one with all the arrows in his back. So, Oh, my gosh. And even, like, uh, now I'm going to get to theology, okay? Yep. Um, I actually got blacklisted from, uh, I'm going to use that language, from Catalyst, because I made the statement that Solomon was wrong when he said there's nothing new under the sun. You may remember me saying something like that <laughs> way back then. And uh, uh, I didn't get invited back for almost a decade. And, uh, and I said the same thing at the Willow Creek Summit. And uh, my talk was removed from the summit conference talks when they sent them out afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, when they did a summary of all the speakers, they never even mentioned I was there. And uh, that's how bad it was, bro. So what was what was your point under that Solomon was wrong? What was what was he the... was wrong? Yeah, okay. because when he when he says, well, first of all, my point is that around the world we've accepted a wrong view of the world and made it a biblical view of the world. When Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, he wasn't right. He was actually wrong. He was actually introducing a very Buddhist mindset. He was talking about how there's these endless cycles of the sun going up and down, the wind going around and around. And Solomon begins by saying everything is meaningless. There's no meaning in life. But in Isaiah 43, God says, put away the former things, do not dwell on the past. Behold, I am doing a new thing. 
Yep. Now it springs up, but will you even be aware of it? So I'm going, okay, is Solomon right? There's nothing new under the sun. Or is God right? I'm doing a new thing under the sun. <laughs> Probably give only, that one to God, right? You see, and, and, but people can't hear it because once you say Solomon's wrong, what people hear you say is the Bible's wrong. Yeah. He may also have been wrong about the whole wife and concubine thing as well. You know, yeah, there's a lot of things Solomon was wrong about, but see, what happens though is that in that same book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that animals and humans are the same. But we never came to believe that, right? We don't believe mm. that. See, what happens is that we accept heresy that matches our view of reality. Yeah. And when Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, that's what the church actually wants to believe because it holds on to the past and it fears the future. And But when I look at the scriptures, when God does something, it says his mercies are new every morning. He create, there's a new song, a new covenant a new heart, uh, there's a new heaven and a new earth, all I see God doing is new. So it seems to me what Solomon is saying is that when you live your life apart from God, there's nothing new under the sun. True. But when you live in relationship with God, everything becomes new. I can see that. It's a context. I mean, Solomon Ecclesiastes, it's, it's, it's the song of a cynic. It's the song of somebody who, who has struggled through life. Anyway, I rabbit trailed right. you, and so no, no, you were this, kind of blacklisted. This is, this, this is important because I would travel the world and I'd come, I would share ideas how the church could grow, how the church needs to change. And uh, leaders across the world would say, Erwin, there's nothing new under the sun. They would just say it so condescendingly, Erwin, there's nothing new under the sun. And they actually all agreed with Solomon, who was a nihilist. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he said that. And, uh, and so then four years ago, I, I was invited back to Catalyst filing. And lo and behold, while I'm getting ready to speak, um, Andy gets on stage, who everyone in the world loves Andy Stanley. Yep. No one thinks Andy is a heretic. If Andy says something, we know Jesus said it. <laughs> you know, because is there anyone more solid as a human being than Andy Stanley? And Andy gets up there and he says, uh, and he said it in a more just passe way. Um, it's been said, that's how he said, it's been said that there's nothing new under the sun. Now, it hasn't been said, it was Solomon who said it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know? He goes, it's been said, there's nothing new under the sun. And then he said, and we all know that's not true. And everyone affirmed it. And I'm Everyone like, tweeted it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going, okay, all right. Now everyone knows that's true. But I can tell you when I said it, uh, everyone thought it was heresy. And this has been true historically throughout my life, is that um, that's why I worked as a futurist. And people would ask me, I know, what do you need to do to be a futurist? And I said, well, in the church, all you have to do is see the present clearly, because the church is living in the past. <laughs> okay, sorry. Sorry, that is funny. That, there is way too much truth in that. You know, and, and so that would be like a theological shift. And, uh, and one of the ones, like in The Artist and Soul, the first 40 pages is an anthropology of what it means to be human. The Christian anthropology is um, rooted in antiquated, unbiblical, and even um, uh, unrealistic uh, data. Mm. A lot of our theology is, it comes from Calvin. It comes from, uh, you know, before the 1500s. And we root our belief systems in the beliefs of people who didn't even see the world right. Mm. And we don't even realize that that affects our credibility, our legitimacy, and our ability to be effective in the world. And so in The Artisan Soul, um, I'm arguing for an anthropology for what makes us human. 
Uh, you, you know, it, what makes a human being different than a gazelle or an antelope or a gorilla or a cheetah? And in the book, I, I talk about how um, in the same way that bees create hives and ants create colonies, humans create futures. Hmm. Now, I know that's heresy. I knew it's heresy. I knew it was heresy when I wrote it. If heresy is a, um, a new way of seeing reality, but the, tr- but the problem for me is that it's a heresy that's actually biblical. Hmm. And, uh, and, and sometimes we have to destroy our orthodoxy to become biblical. And, uh, you, you know, we actually think, we, we still think the future comes ethereally through magic. That God just throws down the future and there it comes. Or we have such a, a, um, a fatalistic view of the future. We think the future already exists and we're just sort of stepping into it. And, um, and what to me is astonishing is that we can't actually see our humanity. I mean, a silkworm doesn't think about creating silk. It just creates silk. Hmm. Human beings create futures unaware. We don't even realize that when we choose, we're actually creating this interesting thing called the future. And so if, you know, uh, in Barbarian Way, I talked about how, you know, rhinos, when they come together, are called a crash. Vultures are called uh, a a committee. Uh, Crows are called uh, murders. Um, you, You know, humans should be called futures. Because when we come together, we actually create futures. And, uh, and we're uh, completely unaware of them. That's Those are some of the things. Yeah, and so I feel like Mosaic's role and my role in the world is um, not to teach the church how to do the present better, and, uh, which is why it's so hard to replicate Mosaic, because it, mm-hmm. it's hard to replicate something that's creating a future rather than uh, refining a present or preserving a past. So, so much there. Every leader listening, though, has, if you've done anything semi-courageous, has been subject to criticism. Probably not quite at the level that you have, Erwin. <laughs> Why do you keep going? Like, how, how do you not just give up? And you said you have had seasons where you've retreated and where you packed it in for a little bit. But why do you keep speaking? Why? And, and how do you make sure you have the courage to wake up the next day and go, okay, I'm back at it again? Yeah, you know, that's a great, great question. I think that you have to care more deeply um, about why you're doing it than what the response is. Mm-hmm. That's and good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, <laughs> Andy's had to, di- to be fair, I mean, just as someone in North Point world, Andy's had to dig pretty deep on that too because he was pretty much bulletproof for many, many years. And has come under a lot of scrutiny in the last year or two, and I, I just applaud his courage to keep saying what he's convicted is what we need to hear. And it's not yeah, easy. You, I didn't really catch that until like I saw this tweet about something, if you like Tim Keller but don't like Andy Stanley, read this. I saw this on Twitter. And yeah, I, I saw that one too. And so I quoted that tweet, and I said, who in the world would not like Andy Stanley. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I don't even know why I entered that conversation. I'm like, how do you, like, that's like saying, I mean, I can see you not liking Peter, but how can you not like John? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, and uh, I mean, if Andy Stanley's taking a position on something, you know, it's well thought out. You, yeah. you know, he's just trying to make the world a better place. You know that he loves the church. So I'm like, look, even Very if you just, true. Even if you disagree with someone, 
why would you make that the focus of your intention toward them? Like you're going to hate this person or, or be yeah. against them. And, and that's actually why, um, I just said, this is why Christianity has the danger of always becoming stupid. And uh, it's because we hate people who violate our thinking. We don't like conflicting opinions. We, we think that we, we call that heresy. We attack people's character. And I, I just have to believe that people I disagree with are not inherently evil, uh, that I am not the basis of uh, the moral compass of society, that uh, I've been wrong enough times in my life to know that even a good person can be wrong. And uh, they, a well-intentioned person can be wrong. So why would I judge them on that? And, um, and you, you know, it just, yeah, you know, what terrifies us is not people who disagree with us, but people who disagree from the scriptures with us. And uh, because it, they're, they're using our source. And that makes us nervous. And, um, it, you know, because, like, we, we, we're not going to criticize, like, Spielberg or, or you know, we're not going to criticize, um, you know, Hemingway. We're just, we just go, oh, that's who they are. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right, right. And, um, and I, I think we need to applaud people who are trying to understand the world, understand the scriptures, understand life better. And, and, uh, and if we disagree, dis- disagree with respect, with dignity, with you know, truth and respect, you know, with love and respect. Um, but yeah, and, and so, my, you know, it's funny, my son's 29 now. And um, he experienced the, a lot of the pain of growing up being my kid, having people want to kill me, people setting up websites that they're going to have me assassinated. I mean, just absurdities. And he grew up with that. And that's how he experienced Christianity. Oh, my goodness. And, and, uh, and now he keeps saying to me, he goes, all right, Dad, 20 years ago, you were telling us what we needed now. What are the things you need to be saying now that we're going to need in 20 years? Hmm. And, and I just love the fact that, you know, um, he's taken on that mantle saying, and my daughter too, you know, like, Hey, let's just keep pressing into the future. Let's take the church where she needs to go. And, and, um, and, and I, one of the things I really celebrate is when things that I advocated for 25 years ago, had just become so mainstream that nobody knows they came from mosaic, <laughs> you know, so, uh, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I see a lot of people's quotes. Uh, with their names attributed to them that are in my books. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> That's uh, always an interesting moment as a writer or a thinker when you realize, oh, that one, uh, that one left the fold. And uh, yeah. how do you handle that? You're just like, oh, well, all for his glory, right? Or, you know, it's you not. Know, you know what I go? No, I, I said Christians don't understand plagiarism, eh? <laughs> yeah, number one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. We're the, we're the only subset that doesn't actually respect intellectual property because we go, it's all gods. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but we don't think that about like our car or our house. Right, right, or, right. If somebody came in and stole your car, they wouldn't go, well, it's all gods, right? You know? And so one, we don't really have a proper understanding of that. Uh, and the only reason it's important is this. Like um, source material is really important because when I quote someone, if I'm quoting them, I'm giving everyone the opportunity to go back and find that original source material. Right. And they can actually get so much more from that person who actually saw that perspective for the first time. And what you don't realize when you're quoting someone and you're saying it's you is that you don't see everything that person that you're quoting actually saw. Right. And, and so you're actually 
uh, diluting the ability for that voice to impact the world in the way that it's impacted you. But there's another flip side of it is my whole goal was to take uh, my extreme edge thinking and making it mainstream, to mm. making it the way Christians just see the world. And, and uh, so we actually kind of like celebrate that when we go, wow, look at that church. They're about as mainstream and conservative as the church can be. And they're now advocating for the same things about creativity and imagination and uh, human capacity that we were fighting for. That's the goal is to make it just normal. Wow. So I got to ask the question that your kids are asking you. So 20 years ago, you saw some things that we would all own. What's on your horizon right now? What are, what are you saying, huh, we should really pay attention to this? Well, first of all, I'd say, if you want to know that question, you need to read um, The Artisan Soul, even though I'm supposed to be promoting The Last Arrow. The Last Arrow, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, Erwin's books uh, are pretty good. You're, you're not going to really have a miscue there if you pick up any of them. Yeah, I, I think the thing with The Artisan Soul is that it's saying things that have not yet been said. And, uh, and, and, and it needs, uh, and it's a conversation that the church desperately needs. Uh, and we need to understand what it means to be human. We need an anthropology that's actually biblical and accurate. And, uh, and, and I, I hope that the church actually um, embraces this view. Because right now, like, um, the, the unbelieving world is embracing what I'm saying in that book faster than the, the believing world. Hmm. And, and I didn't write it for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's the irony is I wrote it for us. <laughs> and, uh, and so that, I think that's one thing. I think that um, we have to step back and ask ourselves, how is it possible that the church raised up a generation that's so um, uh, sociologically identified as narcissistic? And uh, because I, I, I think that we... I, I, I mean, I don't know if you guys are talking about in Canada. I know they're talking about in Great Britain and the U.S. Uh, but the amount of of quantifiable narcissism that has become normative personality type uh, is almost um, terrifying. Yes. Yeah. And and narcissists are not being developed by people who don't believe in Jesus. Narcissists are being raised by Christians. Can you give me an example or us an example of one or two practices you see that just fuel that fire in the next generation? Like, what are we, is it the sort of, you can be anything you want to be? Is it the over-affirmation, the trophy for everyone? What, what is it that, that we're doing that fuels that? Um, I, I mean, I think you just described several of the things that we're doing. And, um, you know, the hard thing is when you're doing thing, something because you actually love someone. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know. know. So you're not trying to destroy that human being. You're trying to affirm them and make them more. And um, But um, like we've done a lot of assessments here, and uh, we have a way of like identifying a narcissistic personality a pattern. And um, it's overwhelming. In fact, we, worked this, we actually used some secular assessments. And one of the things I was told is that overwhelmingly missionaries, pastors, and CEOs um, have that kind of pattern. Really? And, and, and so I, I, I think some of it is what I'm trying to combat and things like the last arrow yeah. that your, your life can't be about you. Right. Like this, this search for happiness 
uh, it becomes an elusive, endless search where you actually think you're supposed to feel happy every minute rather than create happiness and bring happiness with you. That uh, for me, happiness comes out of meaning. And if you focus on character and meaning and um, you, you have a higher chance of having a happy human being. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, uh, teachability is really, really high on this scale. Uh, like we meet so many 20 year olds who are sure they're right, who are very unteachable, who um, are very fragile. They just can't take criticism at all. Mm-hmm. They cannot take critique. And one of the great challenges when you have a narcissistic personality is that when someone criticizes you, you see that as an indictment on them uh, because they don't see you for who you really are because you're awesome. Right, and, right. They, they, <laughs> they've got it wrong. I got it right. Yeah, and so I think a lot of that is you have to let your kids fail. You have to let them risk and fail. You have to let them know. Yeah, resilience can only be learned on the other side of failure. It cannot be learned uh, avoiding failure. And so what uh, I think what's happening, it's not, just, it's not just bad that they're becoming narcissistic. What's really difficult is that they don't have resilience. Yes. And, um, and you know, and resilience, I think, is, is the missing ingredient right now. And um, 20 years ago, I actually began talking about how resilience is going to become perhaps the most important uh, human characteristic in our society. Uh, I could see it 20 years ago that we were going to lose our ability to have resilience. What were the and, clues? What were the clues 20 years ago? Um, yeah, uh, trophies uh, for uh, attending, um, yeah. you know, um, the uh, end of, of debate and competition. Mm. Because the end, when you no longer have debate and competition, you lose genius and greatness. And because if you can't challenge a person's ideas, you can't move toward greatness, I mean, toward genius. And if you can't tell a person they... Um, didn't win you you lose the context for greatness do you think that's part of what we see or when on social media right now where people are talking at each other not with each other it's just like i just put my view in all caps and you just put your view in all caps on our channels and there's really no debate it's just polemics it's just positioning and right and it's, and it's based on a view that uh, if you don't see things my way you're just stupid Hence, what you said, it's on them, not on me. Yeah, that's right. And rather than saying, um, there's another intelligent human being who's well-intended on the other side of this position, I need to take the time and, and effort to see the world from their perspective so I can better understand my own. And that's why I, I think I had a tweet yesterday that said, we need to stop being political and start being intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. What are you doing at Mosaic? to facilitate that kind of dialogue. I was talking to leaders earlier today who just said they've never seen, in American leaders, their country more polarized. It's like a tinderbox. It's like a flame could set it off. And uh, what are you doing to try to foster intelligent discussion and basic human decency, Christian decency, at Mosaic? Uh, One, we... we, uh... Our church is so diverse. I mean, we, we just very pragmatically solve the problem by making everyone be around people who are different than them. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, our church is just really diverse ethnically. It's incredibly diverse economically. Uh, it's, it's diverse politically. Um, you know, we, uh, this past Sunday, on, uh, we, 
we had nine baptisms planned and we had 130 spontaneous people respond to Christ and get baptized. And so one day we had 139 people follow Christ and get baptized on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard. And the first person I baptized was a woman from Tehran, Iran, who's 28 years old, whose father was in the administration of the Shah of Iran and walked into our church two weeks before as a Muslim, gave her life to Jesus on Friday and followed him in baptism on Sunday. And the diversity in our space is so intense. Um, you, you know, there, there are so many people who um, can mosaic or gay. And, and there's a church a quarter of a mile down the street where the pastor's gay and everyone in the church is gay. And if they wanted to be in a church where everyone was gay, it's, it's literally a Frisbee's throw away from us. But they want to be in a church where people are diverse and they don't want to be in a place where everyone is gay. They want to be in a, they want to be in a place where people are gay and straight and Republican and Democrat and, and white and black and Muslim and, uh, and Buddhist and atheist and Christian. And, and, and a lot of ours is like respecting people where they're at. And uh, we did a survey two Easter's ago. And, uh, and I said, if you're an atheist, but you would say, I'm an atheist, but if God were out there, I'd want him to find me. Would you just respond? And we had over a thousand adults say, I'm an atheist. But if God were out there, I wanted to find me. And I think one of the differences with Mosaic is that Mosaic is a church for the city. It's not just a church for Christians. Yep. And so when I speak, I'm talking to everyone. And, uh, and, um, and even if I don't agree with you, it doesn't mean I can't treat you with love and respect. And I think that's, that's the amazing thing about Mosaic. I mean, you know, I teach the scriptures, you know. Yeah. I, I, actually, I actually believe the Bible. I live my life, you know on the scriptures. In fact, I'm incredibly boring. Like I don't, I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. Uh, you know, I'm faithful to my wife. I've been married almost 35 years. Uh, I don't even have a tattoo. I mean, it's like, I'm embarrassed, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, and so people are like, well, how are you reaching all these edgy people? You must compromise your life. And I'm like, no, actually I've, I, I live a really like healthy life. And, um, I, I just have learned how to love people who are dramatically different than me. Hmm. I think that's, it permeates our culture. It's, it's a part of our space. Do you think that's one of the things that draws so many atheists into the room? I mean, why, if you're an atheist, would you go to a church? It's a great question. Yeah, I just tell them, you're an atheist and you're really good at science and math, but you're terrible at building community. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so you're going to be sitting alone all your life. You know, so you might as well do life with people. And, uh, and I think we're almost like a, a dialectic. We're super kind. Our culture is really a culture of kindness. And, uh, and, um, and we're super, uh, we're incredibly like curious. Like I'm incredibly curious about everything. And my, I, like my talk last week was on, um, on black holes, I think it was, and uh, biofluorescent species, and <laughs> you know, and and so you know, it's I did it. My last Easter talk was actually on fractals, and how fractals are a proof of uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and and you know, so we're I, I'm I, I'm incredibly curious about everything in life, and I see God everywhere. And I think the fingerprint of God is in everything. And, uh, and so I think that people who are really, not academic, but intelligent, mm -hmm. love mosaic. 
there's a difference. Like intuitive people love mosaic. Um, linear people hate mosaic. Okay. You, you know, if you're like a person who really it's data A to B to C to D, mosaic isn't going to be like your your jam. You just you know, and yeah. uh, but if, but if you're a person who's trying to make sense of the universe or connect all the conflicting pieces of information in your life and try to make sense of a whole of this mosaic is like just it's just the right space for you so like i know i i i'm not a i'm not the right chef for everyone right you know and and mosaic isn't like the right uh, meal for everyone but i do think the difference without sounding too polarizing is that uh most churches are cooks mm-hmm and they make great meals for people who are desperate to eat. And, you know, one old school guy said, that's meat and potatoes. Whenever I'd say something from the Bible that he already knew, he goes, that's, that's it. That's it, Pastor. That's meat and potatoes. <laughs> and I realized what they wanted me to do is they wanted me to cook meat and potatoes. And Mosaic is really more like um, the chef's table. Yeah. Like I've traveled, I've gotten to travel the world. So a few weeks ago, I, tra- I, I sat in the restaurant of the number one chef in the world. Uh, uh, Central in Lima, Peru. And my wife and I had this extraordinary, extraordinary meal. And by the way, that, that chef and his restaurant was open because of followers of Jesus who, when his first restaurant went under, brought him in, gave him an opportunity and relaunched him in the same place where he went, went, went bankrupt before. And so the number one chef in the world uh, is cooking because of the church. That's incredible. It's a beautiful thing. And, and I don't even know if he's a believer, <laughs> you know, and, uh, uh, and, but I know he has read the artist and soul. <laughs> and, uh, and so we're sitting and mosaic is really more like, um, a chef's table. And I'm trying to raise up a generation of chefs and not cooks. Mm. Uh, cause people who know Jesus, who believe in Jesus, who love Jesus, who know the church is important. They just need a good cook. Yeah. But people who are, uh, atheists or Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or agnostics or uh, have been violated by the lack of thinking in the church. They need, they need chefs. They need people who take the truths of the scriptures and put them together in such a way that they're having an experience they've never had before. They never thought they could have. You know, I, I, I got a couple more questions for you, and I can't believe the hour's passing as quickly as it is. But I didn't tell you this before we started recording, but I was on a flight recently uh, to the West Coast of Vancouver, and uh, this person came on the flight, and she was, you know when you just see somebody and you just know they're famous, but you don't know how? It's just <laughs> like she's 32, 33, very, and I just thought, I don't know who she is, but she's famous. Anyway, I had the only empty seat next to me on the plane, and so she You're sat down. You're about to say very, very attractive. <laughs> yes, yes, and very attractive. So she sits down next to me in the plane, and she puts her boarding pass like on the on the armrest next to us. Mm-hmm. So I like do a very quick Google search, and I find out she's the lead in a in a major network TV series, and uh, she was also the. So I'm, I just you know I'm not a real talker on planes, so I didn't say much, but. Uh, there was some disturbance behind us and we strike up this conversation and she asked me what I do. She tells me what she does and we start talking and uh, she goes, so you're a pastor, right? I'm like, yeah, and I write and all that. And so she starts telling me about her life and she's working in Vancouver, but mostly in LA. 
and that she really needs to get right with God, but she's got all these questions. I'm like, well, do you know there's this church in Hollywood, Mosaic? And she's like, that's where I go. And I'm like, you're kidding. And so we get into this long conversation. I won't say her name or the TV show or anything, but you know, she's just on that bubble where um, she's kind of made a commitment to Christ, but her life isn't really lined mm-hmm. up. And I'm like, are you missing community? She's like, that's what I need. He keeps talking about like getting into a community group and I need to do that for some kind of, and I just thought, thank God literally for Mosaic. Like to know that, that, you know, somebody with this kind of influence and this kind of, um, you know, life at a very young age is has actually got a, a forum where she can ask her questions about God, faith, life, Christ, and be supported is exceptional. I'll t- tell you who it is after we're done. Um, but isn't that isn't that a cool story? That is so so good, and uh, you know um, that's like our story every day. Hmm. And uh, what's funny is like uh, because people have asked me, well, you know, do any celebrities go to your church? Because they see all these celebrities always like being connected to all these churches across America and. And I said, you know, it's funny. Uh, I guess I'm kind of like old school because I always kept celebrities anonymous and protected their, you know, their their space and let them sit in never, the back. Yeah. It, we no, they, they, they sometimes they'll sit in the front. We just we don't use them to market us. Yep. Does that make sense? Totally. You know, and uh, and we just we want them to be humans who follow Jesus and. And uh, have a chance to really like grow in their faith, and and uh, and frankly, a lot of times I don't recognize people. I know me neither. <laughs> I go to L.A. and I'm like, uh, I know these people are famous, but I have no idea who they are. Um, I know because somebody was in our church, and I said, "Hi, you doing?" We're talking about that, and and afterwards, like somebody goes, "You know who that was right?" And I go, "Nah, he looks familiar." And he's like massive, like everyone in the whole world knows <laughs> this guy. A lister, right? A lister, yeah, but. And I would know him if I saw him on TV, if I saw him, you know what I mean? But, if, but when I see him at Mosaic, I, I, my, and somehow that, that part of my brain just turns off and, and I'm just looking at a person, right? you know. So I have so many more questions for you. Maybe we can do a part two one day. I mean, we didn't even get to one of my questions was on Church on the Brady and you said you hadn't heard about that for 20 years, which is awesome. <laughs> so I need to ask you that question at some point. Probably not today. I want to wrap it up with two things. Number one, um, so you have a diverse church and you said that you love to have a church where, you know, not everybody agrees on everything. How do you love somebody who has, how do you, like you, Irwin, and how do you teach your church to love people with whom you don't currently share a faith basis or who just have radically different lifestyle, political views, um, economic strata, you know, all of that. How do you, how do you create that kind of loving atmosphere when there's, you know, not a whole lot you would normally agree on. Uh, well, it's funny because you're asking me that as, as if I actually agree with everybody in the church. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I have more agreement with people who are uh, without Christ in so many ways. Really? And I, yeah. And uh, I, I find myself having a harder time um, finding resonance with people who are just so sure of themselves. And uh, that's harder for me. People who just think they're just right, no matter what their position is, whether it's on the left or the right or whatever it is, people who just know they're right. I, I don't have a lot in common with them. And, uh, and I work harder with them. So I think here's the thing is you got to have friends. It, it's not about trying to find a way to agree with people or disagree with people. You got to l- actually like people. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. so, if you if you only like people who are like you, the only person you actually like is yourself. Hmm. That's so <laughs> convicting. You're right. You're absolutely right. You know, so I, I tell people all the time, I say, look, you're just looking around the world for people like you. And and that's why you like them so fast. And I, I actually like people who are different than me. I mean, I married someone incredibly different than me. Our, our, our theological positions were different. Our political positions were different. She's Irish. I'm Spanish. Uh, I mean, you know, we couldn't have been more polar opposites. She grew up on a farm. I'm like a, compute, a complete city person. Yeah. So I, I, I think some of it is that I genuinely like people who are different than me. And I think you just have to take time, take people lunch, have dinner with them, invite them to your house, get to know people who are just, they're, they're fascinating. I mean, and, and then don't feel a need to prove you're right. Like right. just get to understand where they're coming from. And, and, uh, and I think that's the beginning point is, you actually have to like people. You have to want to be around people who are different than you. Uh, you have to learn how to um, dis- to disagree without being disagreeable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and, and that is a dying art in our culture. Yeah. I really think it is. We watch the um, you know the news that we most agree with. We read the papers. We or you know the news sources we most agree with. We listen to our music that we love the most, and the whole that gets back into that narcissistic conversation we yeah. were having gotta ask you to um just to update us your health um so you had the surgery and yeah i'm doing great uh great. you know they um uh they i've done like three two three follow-ups and there's no sign of cancer and it looks like uh um, they got it all and you know and and the funny thing is that they told me i had cancer on the 15th and then it was probably like the 26th i um I called the family. We're going to give them our Lexus SUV that my wife had. And I wanted to give it to them as a gift. And my wife and I both you know, wanted to give to them. And so I went and got it detailed. I went and got all the paperwork done. I was driving home and a truck careens through um, a stop sign, hits me uh, and totals the car and almost kills me. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, and the car was just completely destroyed. And it's funny that the family that we're going to give it to actually shows up with the accident because they were waiting at our house and they didn't know why. Oh. And, and, um, and I thought, wow, they just told me I had cancer. Hadn't even had the surgery yet. I'm going to get killed by a runaway driver in a truck who runs a stop sign. And ironically, in the whole process, that was the only time I cried. I got out of the car and I saw this young couple that I wanted so badly to give the car to. And I started to cry because I thought, God, why would you like let that happen? I just wanted to do something really kind here. And so I, I just remember, you know, you know, you think cancer is going to kill you, but it's going to be some drunk driver driving across the street or, you know, a, a, a comet is going to fall on my head. And so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we just live under the illusion that we're going to be here forever. It's better just to live with the reality that life is precious. Every day is a gift and you should live it. Uh, you should live it well. Wow. Well, your latest book, Artist and Soul, we talked about a lot, but the latest book is The Last Arrow, Save Nothing for the Next Life. Erwin, where's the easiest place for people to find you online these days? Oh, wow. Be, uh, we know we just started a new podcast yesterday. Uh, we're trying to emulate uh, you, Carrie. Really? Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> it's uh, me and my son, Aaron, and we're doing it online. And um, yesterday, I, I don't know when they're releasing it, but I did a thing on, um, on how to think. Okay. And um, so I'm, I'm just taking like different topics that my team always asks me about that I never put in the public space. 
on the creativity, imagination, leadership, culture, innovation, just stuff like that. It's just going to be basically um, uh, top of the mind kind of stuff. And um, so you can go to erwinmcmanus.com, I think. Okay. And you can definitely go to mosaic.org. Uh, we have a podcast. We have an iTunes, uh, no, YouTube channel. I'm terrible at this stuff. Yeah, I'm yeah. Just, you know. Because well, you like fame so much. That's why you're terrible at it. Yeah, and so I, I should know all these things, but I know you can find it. So you can go to mosaic.org, and, and most of the stuff there, you can click there. And I think they've created an erwinmcmanus.com, and you can get uh, my weekly podcast, which are my talks. And now we're creating this new podcast. We don't have a name yet. So we're I was going to say, do you have a name? Because that's the easy way. But if you just search Erwin McManus on iTunes or whatever, you'll find it. And yeah. uh, this is cool because I we're recording this in early October. Uh, air date is October 24th. So hopefully oh, by the time this hits, uh, so will your podcast. Well, that'd be fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. Well, next time, Church on the Brady Leadership, your writing process, which I find fascinating and all the stuff we weren't <laughs> able to get to today. Erwin, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you so today. much, Gary. Yeah, there's got to be a part two for that. <laughs> that was... Man, I didn't even like, you know, I think I got three questions in to what I was going to ask. And uh, I do want to talk to him about Church on the Brady and the whole leadership journey. Um, But that one was really good for me. I don't know about you. And some of you who just feel picked on in leadership or misunderstood, uh, I hope that's an oasis for you. And uh, challenging and provocative at that. Hey, next week we're back. And our episode, uh, for those of you who are subscribers, this is going to come automatically in your inbox. And if you're not, a subscriber. Why not? It's free wherever you get your podcast. So just stop right now, hit the subscribe button because we are back with a leadership conversation that will blow your mind. Allison Evans is someone I've known for a long time. She's been in on the senior leadership circle at Life Church in Oklahoma and now around the country and uh, came out of the marketing world to join Craig Rochelle on the Life Church team. Craig also is going to be a guest this fall on the podcast, by the way. But Allison, man, Super sharp. Here's an excerpt from next week's conversation. I think the idea of having nine services in a weekend like we have now was like mind boggling. And we thought if we could just double up. Right. And so the second service, though, we had a a guy that led worship and it was very, you know, just acoustic and there were candles all over the stage. (laughs) And we were trying to appeal to that sort of hipster age group. And the, the guy didn't wear shoes. And, you know, it was just a whole different vibe. Like, who are we trying to be? And it failed miserably, miserably. So we're back next week with Allison Evans, all about reaching families, unbelievable growth, hard decisions, and leveling the next-gen playing field. Uh, It's a pretty honest conversation. Mark Batterson's coming up. So is Craig Rochelle, Chris Durso. uh, Oh, so many more. And if you subscribe, you don't miss a thing. And uh, just want to remind you, if you haven't yet registered, time's running out for the Pipeline Leadership Conference. That's happening in February in California, Orange Conference. Go to myleadershippipeline.com, enter the promo code lead like never before. And um, yeah, we'll be able to do that. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you're having a good week. I hope this encourages you. And uh, we can connect all week long, by the way. You can go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. I write blog posts there. We have great conversations. And you'll find all the information on Breaking 200 Without Breaking You on that site as well. Thanks for listening. We're back next week with a brand new episode. Have a great one. And we'll talk to you then. I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. 
You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.